Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. The UK continues to unlock. But as people flock back into pubs and onto planes, some ministers are feeling nervous about the Indian variant. I'm Heather Stewart political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. I don't see uh, anything uh, conclusive at the moment to say that we need to deviate from the roadmap, but we've got to be cautious and we're keeping uh, everything under very close observation. We'll, We'll know a lot more in a few days' time. Experts said this week that the Covid variant first detected in India is set to be the dominant strain in the UK within days. Some think it was a mistake for Boris Johnson to go ahead with the easing of lockdown restrictions implemented on Monday and there's increasing doubt about whether the next step in the roadmap on the 21st of June will be able to go ahead as planned. Meanwhile, the questions have been mounting for Boris Johnson about why India was not placed on the red list of countries from which travel is banned earlier and whether the UK's border policy remains, as the PM's former adviser Dominic Cummings claimed this week, a joke. Plus, as promised, to celebrate The Guardian's 200th birthday, I sat down with my predecessors, three former political editors, to reminisce about how things have changed, from the job and the politicians to the office, and the mistakes that still keep them up at night. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. Let's have a look at this week's easing of lockdown restrictions and how domestic concern over the Indian variant is making Westminster nervous. To do that, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Raphael Baer. Um, It's lovely to have you, Raph. How have you spent the first couple of days since the lockdown easing? Have you been back inside a pub yet? Uh, no, I've spent very much how I spent all the other days of lockdown. Not deliberately. I haven't been actively avoiding going to the pub. Uh, I've just had work to do. I've got a pub date booked for later in the week and I am quite excited about that. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. We did manage a, a meal out, uh, my partner and I, last night. And, and you know, ha- having a meal and not doing the washing up afterwards was extremely exciting. <laughs> it's about as good as it gets. Um, so it, it should have been a kind of week of unalloyed kind of joy there, shouldn't it? The next stage in the government's cautious but irreversible roadmap, et cetera, et cetera. But there's actually quite a lot of anxiety, isn't there, in Whitehall about this variant? It's it's potentially could delay the next stage, couldn't it, apart from anything else? Well, it all feels a little bit like a flashback to the end of last year, where you had a situation where the prime minister was politically very committed to something, in that case, a sort of giving people a break over Christmas. And then a new variant sort of comes in from the side, and which was then the Kent variant, and, and people start to get worried about it. And there's a tension between 
sort of monitoring the science and thinking, well, actually, can we give people this privilege that we've promised them if the facts have changed on the ground about the virus? And so you, what you have is a sort of a political imperative rubbing up against just new scientific information that might make that political imperative less salient anymore. The, the big difference, obviously, now is the vaccine program. And so actually, the calculation is different. People are vaccinated. The risk might not be what it was from a new variant. And yet the bottom line is we don't know. And the way the news cycle works uh, and the way the prime minister works, <laughs> decisions have to be made and statements have to be made in the absence of good information. Yeah, and I thought I, I really thought the body language from the Prime Minister when he sort of gave that warning that we can't say yet whether we can go ahead with the next stage of the reopening on the 21st of June. I felt that was very familiar from sort of various points last year where he wanted to be all upbeat and sort of bluff, which is his kind of natural um, approach and, 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 and had to admit that he, you know, he doesn't really know yet. Well, exactly. The thing is, because we have been through various cycles of this, and there's no point us here rehearsing all of them, and we wouldn't even remember all the various different chapters and, and sub-chapters that have gone on. But what it ultimately comes down to is there is a large section of the Conservative Party that really hates lockdowns, doesn't like them on a sort of libertarian grounds because they think it's a, an infringement of individual freedoms, doesn't like them on economic grounds. And more or less surrendered to the argument that a lockdown was necessary at the start of this year, just because the evidence was so overwhelming that the Kent variant was wreaking absolute havoc. And the sort of condition of that was this would definitely be the last time. Now, that wasn't actually a promise the prime minister was able to make because we know it's a pandemic. All sorts of things could be happening around the world. Viruses mutate. So, as I say, he made a political pledge which he wasn't qualified to give. But that's, I mean, that's how Boris Johnson operates, isn't it? I mean, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's an issuer of casual promises to get out of a particular situation. And he hopes that something will come down the line if he has to break that promise. He really doesn't want to break that promise now. Uh, and unfortunately for him, if the facts about this new variant militate against the 21st of June and just saying, right, it's business as usual, he's going to be in a difficult situation with regard to a, a very vocal part of his party. Yeah, absolutely. As, as 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 you say, he's he's made promises too. Um. Meanwhile, there's also been a lot of talk, hasn't there, uh, this week, a lot of conversation about vaccination rates. And you know, Matt Hancock made the point that many of the people who have ended up being hospitalised with COVID in Bolton, for example, were people who were eligible for the jab and had not yet taken it up. I mean, for one thing, that sort of infuriates the type of Conservative MP who thinks that we all shouldn't have our freedoms taken away in order to protect someone who hasn't done what they should do to protect themselves. But it, it's very difficult territory, this, isn't it? Well, it's difficult on two levels. First, I mean, there's a question of should people be entitled to put themselves at risk by not having the vaccine, which I suppose on the you know pure liberal grounds they are. There's the problem that they're not just putting themselves at risk if they're then going to be transmitting the virus. And so is there an, a, a stronger social obligation and a political obligation, essentially, to make sure those people do get vaccinated? Those are sort of philosophical questions that feed into important political issues right now. But then there's a whole second issue here, which is, given that the government has spent the best part of this year now boasting about how good the take up has been, and how many people have been vaccinated, and what a great triumph it is. There is something a little bit fishy about now saying, well, of course, the problem is all these people who aren't getting vaccinated. And that's their lookout. You know, that's their problem. You know, they shouldn't have done that, especially when we also know that part of the political background to this is Boris Johnson wanted to go on a trade mission to India 
Uh, and it was very important for him. It was going to be his first big mission abroad. And it's all about global Britain. And this was, you know, you know how sort of fizzing with impatience he was to get on with this sort of stuff and do it. And around that time, it started to look like not only should you not go to India, but you shouldn't let anyone uh, try and obstruct as many people as possible from India from coming to the UK. And they didn't do that necessarily in a timely fashion. And it's not a huge leap of the imagination to think that they delayed and prevaricated on that because Boris Johnson wanted to have his trade trip. And I think, although obviously the Conservative Party uh, will deny that and number 10 will deny that very vigorously, they're not doing a terribly good job of persuading most people in Westminster that that isn't what happened. Raph, there was a, a more serious critique of the government this week from the National Audit Office, which looked at the, the pandemic and, and sort of focused on some of the, the much longer standing weaknesses in, in government and divisions in society, including, for example, the neglect of social care and underfunding in local government. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that are not being properly looked at, aren't there? When Boris Johnson talks about building back better, he still doesn't have a social care plan and he's still planning on cutting local government funding. Well, yes. I mean, that in a sense, you, you can in, either interpret that report as through a sort of partisan lens, which is a perfectly legitimate way to look at it, which is to say, well, Whitney, if you've had the best part of a decade of austerity and cuts and a governing philosophy that didn't take local government very seriously and certainly thought it was okay to slash budgets by around 25%. And then you need that infrastructure to be your safety net when a a horrible disaster like a pandemic strikes. That, with hindsight, looks like it was a mistake. And that was a Tory government mistake and they're paying the price for that. Or you can see it more in terms of just the general history and culture of British government, which isn't necessarily a partisan thing, but which is over centralization, a lot much longer tail of not really thinking that local government people are of caliber or serious enough and therefore they can't really be trusted with big decisions. That the report is, is fascinating on both levels. I mean, it does indicate that there was a, an ideological problem with the way the Tories disregarded the value of the state that has come to bite them in the pandemic. And there are cultural problems with the way British politics runs itself. And we have talking of hard choices and also talking of Brexit. There's really quite a sort of fascinating rows broken out this week, hasn't it, in Cabinet about Britain's post-Brexit future, this idea of an Australian trade deal. I mean, it's kind of a microcosm of, or, or it's an example of a row they're going to have to have many times over, it seems to me, in the years ahead. But, you know, sort of buccaneering free trading Liz Trust wants to do a deal, doesn't she, that would slash tariffs on farm goods, minute batters of the national... Farmers Union said this week that that would result in a tsunami of beef, horrible image coming, <laughs> coming from Australia, you know, wipe out lots of UK farmers. The, the Agriculture Secretary, George Eustace, and also Michael Gove, I think, aren't so keen on this plan. They'd like to see farmers protected. Britain's going to come up against this kind of dilemma over and over again, isn't it? And it's kind of about what Brexit was for and what it meant. Absolutely. And it is exactly goes back to the heart of this issue of of making hard choices or at least explaining that hard choices exist, because I think ideologically, the whole point of Brexit, whether you agree with it or not, you can recognise that the theory was that you get to do essentially what Liz Truss wants to do now in this free trade deal with Australia, which is essentially zero tariff, zero quota, open up to the rest of the world. You've turned your back on the single market. You're saying we're not, we want free trade with everyone apart from the EU, basically. Well, they want some free trade with the EU, but they don't want to be like part of the single market. And if you're Michael Gove, even though you're a you know, died-in-the-wall Brexiteer to some extent, you are also got half an eye on particularly Scottish 
farmers who might be less economically viable in the face of this competition, and you're thinking about the future of the union, you're thinking, oh, hang on a second, this ideological project of embracing free trade as part of the global Britain narrative has slightly unfortunate political consequences right now that I'd rather not confront or that we might try and shut down. And so as exactly as you said, in microcosm, the, the whole piece will start to erupt in the backyards of Tory MPs who haven't thought about this because they were thinking about it in those highfalutin abstract Brexit terms and they hadn't turned around to ask their constituents, is it okay if I make you unemployed because we're going to get a bunch of cheap stuff from another country somewhere? They, and when they do have to actually work through that equation, they might be a bit surprised about what they've signed up to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Raphael Bert, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. To hear more about the latest setback in the fight against COVID, listen to Tuesday's episode of Today in Focus, when The Guardian's science correspondent Nicola Davis talks to Anushka Astana about what it all means for what happens next. After the break, three former political editors of The Guardian take a trip down memory lane. We'll be right back. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now, this month, The Guardian is celebrating a very important birthday. It's 200 years since a four-page weekly first appeared in Manchester. Now, here we are more than 54,000 editions later. I've been political editor at The Guardian since 2016, and through that period, I, with a great team of colleagues, have covered two general elections, three Tory leaders, the Brexit crisis, the rise and fall of Jeremy Corbyn, and of course, most recently, the government's response to the pandemic. But before me came many others, and I wanted to gather some of them together to look back at many decades of political reporting. Anushka Astana was joint political editor with me in a job share for a couple of years before taking on the role as host of our flagship daily Today in Focus. Patrick Winter, who's now The Guardian's diplomatic editor, was political editor for nearly 10 years. And Michael White, who was a Guardian journalist for a whopping 45 years, spent 16 of those as political editor. Perhaps I could start by just asking what the sort of... You know, what was the kind of big political story or the big political movement or moment during your period of being The Guardian's political editor. Um, Anushka, shall I start with you? We we did the job together, didn't we, for quite a while? And I would say it was probably Brexit at that point. It's got to be. I mean, we literally started in March 2016, straight in the deep end with a referendum. Although every time you think about it, don't you think 
the next thing's just as mad as the thing before it. Yes. But I guess it's all centred around the referendum for us, isn't it? And then the absolute crazy fallout for both of the main political parties in the wake of that. Mike, what about you? I, I long for this, but you, you got to see a Labour government... Well, I started, uh, I, I was the sketch writer in 77 to um, 84. So I got the sort of collapse of the Wilson Callaghan government, which culminated in the winter of discontent, where I expect Patrick Minter was a Labour correspondent in those days, um, mayhem, and the rise of Thatcher, which also included the Falklands War and the beginning of the, the minor strike. I mean, an intensely turbulent period. Uh, amazing. Uh, astonishing looking back on it and you had the IRA and the Russians were still on the rampage and heaven knows what so um, you know pretty lively stuff Patrick was it all quiet in your uh, in your period compared to that yeah my brilliant career nothing (laughs) happened Uh, I am I started on the Guardian and I got the splash the first day with the miners strike and that was before the miners that was a pre miners strike miners strike I then joined the lobby I think a bit when John Major was coming to an end. And then I finally got rid of Mike as political editor. And I then took over. (laughs) Now he tells me. (laughs) I then took it over, I think, in the sort of tail end of the Blair years, Brown coming in, and then I do the coalition government between the Libs and I think it was uh, the man called David Cameron who makes phone calls to people he knows now in government. (laughs) <laughs> Patrick, tell us about being Labour correspondent because that's a job that no longer exists, it's very sad to say. No, it, I've, I got found out because I, I kept on writing strike looms or strike threatened and then no strike ever happened uh, <laughs> because basically the Labour unions had sort of lost all their muscle. But it, ha- it was an incredibly important job and it, I think that we had three Labour correspondents. I think the Financial Times had five and uh, one of your jobs was to cover the relationship between the trade unions and the Labour Party but I used to know the ins and outs of who was on the um, executive of the amalgamated engineering union and whether there was going to be more a slight swing to the left or not but that (laughs) it all seems absurd now but um, that's what we used to do. That, that's partly why Labour's in so much trouble now, isn't it? Because the, all this world Patrick is describing no longer exists. Thatcherism, with the help from the militant unions as well, destroyed that world and the consensual world of uh, what we used to call butskillism after the Second World War when it was much more, well, it's just very different. It wasn't marketized, and poor old Starmer has to manage without them. I think I did the last two great hurrahs as it were of the trade union movement which was the the miners strike itself for the whole year which was extraordinary to cover and you never knew one day to the next what was going to happen and and i think that was true of the national union of mine workers as well and then i did the sort of collapse of the print unions when the um, murdoch took the newspapers to whopping and basically wiped them out Extraordinary period, wasn't it? And Mike mentioned Labour there and their travails there. Your relationship with the Labour Party is, is quite a critical element of being political editor of The Guardian, I would say. Mike, Mike what was it like in, in your period? It's always difficult because I'll be interested to see if others agree, because the Labour Party wants The Guardian to behave towards the Labour leadership in the way that the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph treats the Tories, which is, you know, my allies, good or or, or bad, uh, right or wrong. And, you know, 
Guardian isn't there. It's never been a Labour newspaper as such. It's a progressive centre-left, call it what you want to. And it's also the instinctive of, you know, the sort of people who end up working for the Guardian don't want to be too polite to the government anyway. You're not on your knees to Boris Johnson and you never would be to Blair or to Wilson or to Jim Callahan. You're sympathetic. You're a critical friend. And sometimes they understand that and some are kinder than others about it. Jim Callahan was very understanding, but you're not giving them what they really want. And I think even Kinnock would have loved to have had the, be, uh, the same treatment the male got from Maggie that uh, he didn't get, I'm afraid, nice man that he was, that Neil Kinnock didn't get from the Guardian. Yeah, it's just not our way, is it? Anushka, does that ring true to you? Yeah, I, I kind of used to think of working for The Guardian a bit like supporting Manchester United. You love it, but lots of other people don't love you for some reason. And the Labour Party seems to have this particular difficulty with The Guardian. It's like they know that they should have The Guardian on side, but it's almost like part of their brand not to have it on side, whether it's from the right where they don't want to look too Guardian Easter and they're reaching out one way or whether it's from the left where we're too right wing for them. And of course, when you and I were political editors together, it was very much the rise of Corbyn, which we reported on at great length. And I thought very well, but I remember having conversations both with Corbyn supporters and those close to him who would really moan and moan and moan about The Guardian and I think we had quite a difficult time particularly with social media but then some on the right who thought you lot are just a bunch of Corbynites and I really felt like we couldn't win. My, my guess is that must have been the hardest uh, relationship with the Labour Party, listening to Anushka talking about that. I used to sit there reading, weeping for them, uh, the impossibility of uh, in this dreadful feud uh, of both pleasing uh, or even satisfying both sides. I'm old enough to remember going to a meeting at Luton, the marginal seat, in order to hear Tony Blair saying what he was apparently saying all over the country. Somebody asked a question about The Guardian, and Blair, Prime Minister Blair, said... Speaking for myself, I prefer to read a, a Labour newspaper. <laughs> Patrick, I was going to say, perhaps in your period, relations were smoother, were they? Or is, is that not fair? Is it always a bit scratchy? Well, the I suppose the particular problem that came in the Labour government was that, that there were two camps. So there was the Gordon Brown camp and then there was the... Uh, Blair camp. It was really almost all the protagonists now say they can't remember what they were arguing about, but it was incredibly <laughs> personal and bitter. And it ended, but it also it it translated to the lobby because you became known as either a Blairite or a Brownite, and uh, it was just quite. It was really unpleasant, and you try quite hard to avoid it. Mike, I wonder how different you think the sort of day-to-day -day reporting is now. What what was your day like? I should say, shouldn't I, that we, although The Guardian's physical location, the main paper's physical location has changed uh, a number of times over the years and is now in this lovely glass and steel building in King's Cross, our office in, in the lobby, I think, is probably the same as it ever was, isn't it? It's a sort of pokey little office on a little corridor with little mullioned windows and, and, and not much natural light. So I think we're probably all uh, physically in the same place. Oh, well, you should have seen when it started, Heather. Oh, no, is it is it better than it was? It didn't have any windows when we first oh, moved no. in. No, we, we were scattered all over. I used to be in room 17 and then we're across the corridor. You're right. It was a very squalid room. Patrick was there too with no uh, windows. But when they made some changes, not for our benefit, they knocked in a couple of lights and it's heaven compared with uh, with what it was. It's uh, the um, uh, Every uh, newspaper has has uh, their own room. So there's the Telegraph room and the Guardian room, which is shared with the Observer. And then next door is the FT and so on and so forth. 
But that's all been changed, the answer to Heather's original question, because we're talking about the world before social media and before television. And um, when I first started, you know, if you wanted to know what happened in the Houses of Parliament, you had to read a newspaper. And a completely different world, a hermetically sealed world. So when people ask what it was like when I was there, my answer is always that it was dark because (laughs) there weren't TV arcs, there weren't TV lights in the chamber. And it was dark and mysterious place. You remember all this, Patrick? It was a. It is a fun place because it's kind of mini. It is a mini Fleet Street in the sense that every newspaper is there. The interchange, or certainly was the interchange between newspapers about what was going on, was quite high and constant. So you you knew as much about what the Mail was thinking as the Telegraphers, um, the FT. So there was a kind of a, just a lot of. Um, conversation which made it fun I mean in my period it did change so that you used to be able to sort of ring at about 10 o'clock and say this is roughly what's happening today and then file around eight uh, with people shouting at you you're late and now well certainly by the time I left it was sort of you were on at seven in the morning and it was just an endless sort of run of stories and it you'd collapse in bed after news night and it just the, the the space of the day expanded massively during the period i was there which is just the function of technology yeah that's that sounds very familiar anishka right yeah i mean obviously it was completely different world because you need the story to be up instantly don't you i mean you find ways to do it which is you get other members of the team to do the instant story so you still can be elsewhere reporting but it is just a totally different cycle i think actually the fact that heather and i did it as a job share was kind of amazing because it is too much for one person to be that on it all the time and we were just able to kind of pass the baton i was trying to remember like some of the things that we did. I remember this one day where in my memory you were in a kind of lock-in for the Chilcot Inquiry report on the Iraq war in the morning and I was like cheering my three-year-old on at, you know, <laughs> sports day at home. And then at about midday, I sort of raced into um, Westminster, passed the baton, you went home, I think to parents' evening or something. And then Michael Gove maybe was giving his leadership bid for the Tory leadership after Brexit. And it was just absolutely crazy. And, you know, if you think about when we started, I began on The Observer in 2003 and all we cared about was the paper. You know, we didn't really think about online at all. Whilst now, or by the time I was political editor, you wouldn't even need to check half the time whether the article was in the newspaper because way, way more people are going to read it online. That said, we still needed to go and do the reporting. I mean, I just got these and, and the room hasn't changed much, has it? I, I remember sitting there like water dripping through the lights above me. I had a bucket on the desk. I had my coat yeah, on because it was so ceiling cold. Ceiling leaks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, t- typical leaks. And and still committee corridors got to be the same. Rats. Do you have rats? It's certainly mice. Mice. I killed one once with a stapler. <laughs> stapler? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was reported in the Daily Mail as, as guardian hypocrisy. They're meant to love animals, but I got one on, on Perkins's desk, I think. Oh. <laughs> um, Mike, Michael, what about the politicians? How, how do you think the politicians have changed over the period? I mean, how, do you now look at the current crop and think, my goodness, you know, standards have really slipped? Well, the trouble is with that, which is what I do think, of course, is that... Um, You know, old men always say that about the next generation going to the dogs, blah, blah, blah. That said, I can make a good case for saying 
you know, it doesn't work as well as it did. When I, when I was first there in the 70s, so men in their 50s and women too, because Margaret Thatcher was in her 50s, were in their prime. Most of them had been in the war and seen mm. dreadful things, some of them. So they're much less, they're less, much less experienced of the world. And the other thing they're less experienced of, in my view, was, of course, that, that far more members of the working class, as well as TOFs, and nowadays, Parliament is much more sort of graduate. I don't know what the percentage is. It would be very high. Middle class, uh, male and female, 200-odd women, that's all a good thing. 50 ethnic minorities, that's all good stuff. But they're much more the same sort of type of person, whereas you would have people who have been coal miners. And there are also members of the aristocracy and, you know, retired admirals. So there was a... You know, a different spread and a different experience. And I'm ashamed to say, because I know it's an old man's remark, they did seem to have more experience than having just read PPE at, uh, and been a spad. That's a cliche, I know, but I do feel it. Doesn't mean it's not true, Mike. And it's good. To, do you think he's wrong? Well, I think things have definitely changed and in some ways that make it harder for journalists. You know, I think Parliament has professionalised to a certain extent, even in the time that I've been going there you know already it's kind of less of a culture of all the boys out on a you know night drinking probably accelerated somehow because of covid and that probably does make life harder for journalists i agree that the kind of rise of the professional politician has been a shame and has stripped something out of what you get in parliament because you get fewer people who have real stories and have real life experiences that you want to be able to talk about that said you know, I do think it can also be overdone. Like you still basically have loads of people who have links to individual constituencies that they can tell you about. And that is fascinating. What I don't know is whether how the leaders behave has changed. You know, the thing that I found most remarkable, which was partly actually before I became political editor at The Guardian when I was at Sky News, I followed the conservative campaign through the 2015 general election so I was asking David Cameron questions day after day after day after day (laughs) and the way the way that they evade questions and just literally will just look at you and just answer something completely different and ignore what you've said and I definitely think they still do this now I don't know has that changed from the past did they do that less what was Blair like Patrick I think one one point would be to make, say, during the election campaigns, every party would have a press conference in the morning and it was, you know, you'd start at seven with the Lib Dems and you'd rush over to Labour and then do the Tories. And I remember there was one time when uh, uh, Michael White sort of asked, I think Chris Patton was the Conservative Party chairman at the time, and, he, and Michael White asked one question and he, he tried to ask a, a follow-up. And I remember Patton saying, you know, I'm quite happy to take questions, but this isn't a Socratic dialogue. <laughs> And there was a sort of kind of way in which there was there was a willingness to to really be pummeled by journalists and tested. And I think often they fell apart under the under the pressure of the politicians. And as a result, they stopped holding those press conferences. And it it seems to me election campaigns are totally anemic events where they're totally done for television. The bogus sense there's a, a hall full of people when in fact it's sort of forty people in the corner waving. Uh, banners and the whole idea of political campaigning has sort of died. I mean, it seemed to be in the local elections there was zero activity. The the other bit is the way in which spin doctors have become much more important. So, I think even when I started, there'd be much more direct 
contact with the politician themselves and now their spad, their media person or their you know spin doctor would be on the phone talking on their behalf. So it's more filtered. Um, you're completely right about election campaigns, Patrick. I was on the ridiculous Boris Johnson sort of Brexit bus during the 2019 campaign where they do these ridiculously stage managed things where they sort of bus you and even we even got on a plane at one point to go from one part of the country to another and I was there very early one morning when they got us up to see Boris Johnson delivering some milk to someone or other some poor punter who opened her door and of course was delighted because they'd you know been there the night before to make sure she'd be delighted if Boris Johnson turned up with her milk and and then a TV crew had the audacity to ask him an unplanned question and he went and hid in a fridge and it was really it was really just you just felt a better politician you know would have been able to to handle it and to take a few questions and and how bad would that have been it's incredibly depressing i agree with all of that but the first campaign i covered th- all three weeks of the short campaign was with margaret thatcher when she was she was like a big lorry bearing down upon the labor party you knew she was going to run them over and she did and it was very photo op focused uh, i mean she was more accessible she was combative she didn't duck questions she did beat you to death but uh, i always found if you made a joke everyone in the room would laugh except mrs thatcher who had no <laughs> sense of humor at all but it was soft focus stuff people will still remember the calf in gummer's seat in suffolk where you know she was this this little calf and he held it and probably gave her milk and she stuffed a chocolate factory uh, conveyor belt at one point, did it faster than the workers I hasten to add. And that was all for the TV news. And they were controlling the message. She was accessible a bit. She was all right, much more robust than the people you've been talking about. But it was uh, that kind of TV campaigning. But uh, uh, there's one other story, which is I always used to, before I became a journalist, I used to read newspapers and think, God, they've got these amazing sources. Look at these quotes from this Labour National Executive Committee meeting. They've got word for word someone stripping tons of somebody else. And I then went to a briefing after a National Executive Committee meeting, which was given by the General Secretary. I think it was something like Ron Hayward. And he would read out, Eric Heffer then told the Labour Party leader, you are entirely useless, you need to be fired close quotes. And so so journalists were just being fed by the leadership of the Labour Party, the rows that were going on. And obviously, the, you then see the switch to the sort of Mandelsonian era where everything's more tightly controlled. I think they need to bring that back. That sounds good. That ebbs and flows depending on how secure the parties are. So in the wake of the Brexit referendum, when Labour was having its nervous breakdown, and then the Tories had Boris v Michael Gove and it all went a bit messy you'll remember this Heather that they'd all meet wouldn't they on committee corridor in big groups and they'd meet in the rooms and as a journalist we'd just be ear to the door trying to listen what's going on racing from one end of the corridor to the other but what I found was at that time when there was a vacuum when there was no clear leader when there are different candidates to back everybody leaks everything you'd get word for word everything that would go on from what was in there and then as soon as that stops as soon as for example you see a leader with an 80 seat majority those things start to dry up a bit I just wanted to ask you all also whether there was any story that you felt had kind of got away from you that you really you know is there any story you still think god I wish I'd I don't know I'd wish I'd seized that opportunity or I wish I'd asked that question or I wish I'd pulled that thread I know these things still keep me awake at night, but I'm still in the in the thick of it. But do you, do you? Is there something that you sort of look back on and think, "My goodness, I wish I'd done that differently," or or not let that one slip away? 
I think we got, um, well, I got, um, I was slow to see what was happening with Corbyn. I mean, it was at the tail end of my illustrious career and I was bowing out, so I was probably not really bothered. But um, no, seriously, I seriously didn't realise the extent to which there was such disenchantment and that Corbyn was going to do so well. I mean, partly the it was issues about the franchise, but I, I, I didn't see what, what was to come. I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. I, I had an odd, exp- an opposite experience there because I was um, uh, in semi-retirement and writing uh, blogs, but also doing a bit of reporting out of London because I, I come from Cornwall and I always like to go out, out into the sticks, as you metropolitans would say. But I went in August 1915, I came home from my holiday, no doubt, abroad, and I went to a, a Corbyn rally in Nottingham. There was a, And I came from the station and along the ring road, which is called Maid Marion Way, I don't know why, this is Nottingham, I suppose. And there was a huge crowd outside and there was 800 people inside the hall. It was absolutely jammed. There were 10 speakers. The worst speaker by far was Corbyn himself. He knocked over a glass. And there were two young, slick uh, young men who looked like Blairites, except they'd switched over to become Corbynites. And I thought, I came home and write a piece and said, hey, this fellow's going to win. I was astonished. Corbyn was hopeless, but he was authentic. He was an authentic, bumbling, uh, street protesting, bearded, um, uh, dear but daft old fellow. Although I later came to the conclusion he was, wasn't as nice as I'd thought. Never mind. But the lesson of the story is go out of London, go and listen to people talking. And as we've all said, that gets harder and harder in the age of slick television driven events and everything so hasty and prisoners to the blog and the tweet and all the rest of it. Uh, So I hit lucky on that one, but I missed plenty of others. But in retirement, I spotted him. I think um, I think I would say that there's a Corbyn related thing here too, which was in the 2017 general election when Labour had just agreed its manifesto and we were all racing to get a copy for it of it. And I thought I had a great story because someone had rung me up and they were reading me outlines of the manifesto and I rang it into the news desk and I thought, oh, it's amazing. And then I could feel that there was something in the air in, oh, I was in room 15. Oh, that day, Anushka. Oh my goodness. And then I turned around and I saw the uh, political editor of the Telegraph walk past Gordon Rayner it wasn't his story he'd got it was Kate McCann who'd got it and Jack Blanchard and I just said you haven't got the whole manifesto have you because if you have let me know so I know not to go home now and he just went we have and that sinking feeling in your stomach that at the Guardian you've just missed it to the mark to get the Labour manifesto was pretty bad oh dear Oh, Ooh, I feel you made. I wasn't even in that day. You made me feel quite sick to the stomach. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the very thought that day, awful feelings. Yeah, those are horrible feelings, aren't they? No, oh, that's that's dreadful. The other one was Traingate, which I've just oh, got God. to mention this because Traingate came via me because somebody who I'd worked with gave us the video of Jeremy Corbyn on the floor in the train. I then was so busy that day, I passed it on to someone else, which I really regret. And there was one mistake in the. Story which then got us into lots of trouble. But in reality, it was just a great story that got a million hits on The Guardian. And you know what? Yeah, he later got given a seat on the train, but I would go out to bat for him on that story. I really wish I had seized that story, written it myself, not made any mistakes. Not that it was the person's fault who did. I mean, it was just things had happened along the way. And I wish we'd just gone with it. And I wish that we, The Guardian, unfortunately, instead of being proud of that story, slightly flogged itself. There's a negative side of things you can be pleased about. Uh, I can't remember where it was at a conference after 
Princess Di died. Claire Short, who was a difficult but a good woman, well, as the international development uh, minister under Blair, she put on one of those sort of anti-mine, the sort of thing we wear in to avoid COVID these days, but it was a sort of visa to protect your face. And she was being set up by the tabloids to say, who does she think she is? She thinks she's the new Diana and uh, vicious nonsense. And I went to the Guardian news desk and said, don't do this story on Claire. It's all unfair. It's all rigged up by the newspapers. Leave the woman alone. And I don't know why it's come into my mind, but this terrible thing that uh, Heather just mentioned of what, what, what you get these things wrong, but sometimes in a negative way, you can stop a bad thing happening. And sometimes you can get a slight three in the morning sort of relief rather than the stab of pain of, of what you've missed and things you prevented. And that does happen too. It's actually an incredibly big part of the job that is the judgment about what isn't a story. So go on, Patrick. I, I just because you mentioned Claire Short, I remember you, there's also stories which you regret due to a misunderstanding, which was a genuine misunderstanding, which was I thought I was speaking to Claire Short on the record. And uh, <gasps> it was I hadn't made the terms clear. And she said the people of um, Montserrat will be wanting golden elephants oh. next. Oh, and, I remember uh, that story. <laughs> and it was just one of those weird phrases that sort of worked. And I, I you know. I printed it, and it was, it's my fault, I think, although I don't know 100%, and I'm not, she's hardly on speaking terms with me subsequent to that. Um, <laughs> not, so that was, a, you can make that kind of mistake, oh, yeah, which is a, yeah, yeah. about protecting, you know, it's an incredibly important part of the job is to protect your sources and, and make sure that you've got the terms right. And I completely blew it. I bet you got some calls that evening, Patrick. Uh, she, she, no, I think in those days, no one ever saw a newspaper until sort of the following morning. So it was all it was all OK. But, um, you know, you can get hit by making that kind of mistake. And it, it can really damage your reputation as well. Yeah. I just wonder, you know, what you think the future of. So there's, there's lots of chat, isn't there, about political journalism and whether there's lots of citizen journalism now. There are lots of different ways of covering politics. There's an acceptance that politics goes on way, a long way away from Westminster, away from our our little still quite dark room. Do we think we'll still need political journalists? Or do we think political journalism is something that should and will continue? And how, how will it kind of be different? Anushka? I mean, yes, of course. <laughs> so. And definitely, you know, it's such a shame that people don't trust journalists to such an extent at the moment. You know, every time when you guys are asking questions of the Prime Minister and you watch social media and you watch the reaction to it, I slightly despair that people feel so low about journalism right now. But that will swing again. It always does. At a time when the country feels united or divided, people feel quite differently about journalists. But if we don't have people who are covering politics in a serious way, it would just just massively reduce the amount of information we are able to get. And it is really good to see that the UK lobby is not deferential. I've worked briefly in America and it is much more of a deferential experience. You know, they stand when the president walks into the room. No one is standing here for Boris Johnson. They're willing to ask hard questions, even if they get humiliated when it comes to asking those questions. They still ask them, even if they're not exactly what the government wants them to ask. And I think that is an incredibly important part of you know, our democracy. And it's why we know so much about what went wrong during the coronavirus crisis. I know that there's a big focus at the moment on the vaccine boost and 
and the differences that might have made to this election. But I do also think we've had a really thorough going over all the mistakes that the government has made along the way. And they will be more able to focus on them when the inquiry comes out because of political journalists. Yeah, and actually those press conferences where people got to sort of see us doing our jobs were, in a way were quite nice. I, I certainly got lots of messages saying, you know, thank goodness someone's asking questions. Of course, they never think it's the right question and their question would have been better. But um, thank you all very much. I think we've, we've had a good old reminisce and, and a bit of a look forward. Um, uh, Anushka Astana, Mike White, Patrick Winter, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. I want to thank our guests, Raphael Baer, Michael White, Patrick Winter and Anushka Astana. The producers of this episode are Danielle Stevens and Yolene Goffin, and I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 